Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture this morning, you can find the book of Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7 as we continue on our journey to freedom in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 7. It was many years ago that this occurred, but the moment was so powerful to me. It was like yesterday. A Christian friend of mine found herself in trouble, big trouble. Over a period of time, her heart had gotten hardened to God, and she was guilty of thievery. She'd stolen. Not only had she stolen, but she had stolen from a very prominent figure in the community, uh, no less than a judge. She worked for him. When the discrepancies were discovered and she was caught, she was then broken. Her heart was broken and repentant, but the consequences for her act of law-breaking was looming very, very large over her. When the day of sentencing came, The tensions were literally through the roof. How do I know this? Because I was there as a moral support. Outside of the courtroom, you could cut the tension with a knife. All of a sudden, what would take place absolutely shocked all of us. There was tension, and it was high in Pharaoh's courtroom when we come to Exodus chapter 7 as well. The nation that God had rescued through Joseph 400 years earlier had forgotten all about Joseph. And now they were enslaved going on 400 years and they'd gone from 70 to 2 million plus people. God raises up a deliverer, you know him as Moses. Moses grows up, screws up, then takes up and runs. 40 more years until the reluctant convert has a burning bush experience with God and he receives his call, not a particularly big call, you know, just to to go and deliver two million people who have been incarcerated as slaves. He would repeat an excuse that he made earlier, but it would be the last time he'd ever make an excuse with God. And here it is, chapter 6, verse 7, the verse uh, preceding it. On the day when the Lord spoke uh, to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. And then the the 30th uh, verse says, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, whether or not Pharaoh would listen Uh, to Moses was really uh, more of a matter of his heart, his hardened heart, and not so much of Moses' particular inabilities to speak. The heart of the matter, as we say so often, is the matter of the heart. And nowhere in Scripture is that more evident than this section that we've just entered into. Moses' heart is softening. Pharaoh's is hardening. They are literally a study in contrast. So here's the question, it's begging, it's there, it's at your feet. How is your heart this morning? 
How is your heart this morning? Exodus chapter 7, God responds and says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Take the word like, cross it out. It's not in the Hebrew. See, I have made you God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. What an amazing statement. I'm going to make you God to Pharaoh. This will probably be the only light moment, but uh, last week, our own J. Ross Carlton uh, tried to to fool me. Uh, He sent me this picture. Almost fooled me. Now, a serious note. The pharaohs were all considered gods to the Egyptians. And if you'll recall, the Egyptians had hundreds and hundreds, actually up to 2,000 idols, probably about 90 major ones and even maybe 10 super major ones. And we're going to get after them in the days to come. But they were all visible gods. You could see them. You could carve them. They were made of wood and marble and other such substances. But God never gave Pharaoh a visualization of himself. And later on with the Ten Commandments, there he would command, no graven what? Images, right? And this was totally counterintuitive to an Egyptian culture that literally worshipped idols. And so Moses became, in Pharaoh's eyes, the very God that he represented. Now, back to the text, Genesis chapter 7 and verse 3. But God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. That's coming. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So please note the contrast here between Pharaoh's heart and Moses's. In fact, you see that expression, just as, in the middle of verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He says it again in verse 10. And and, in Hebrew, that's that's emphasized. So Moses isn't making excuses anymore. And hear me on this. A hardened heart will not submit to God. A tender heart will. How is yours? The evangelical world has been sort of rocked in the last couple of weeks by a couple of controversies. Perhaps you're familiar with them. Are you familiar with the John MacArthur, Beth Moore controversy? Uh, uh, Here is uh, the the stellar pastor of Grace Community Church celebrating his 50th anniversary, and they have a little dialogue, and they try to pull a fast one, try to trick him, and uh, ask him to give one or two word answers to words that were given to him. Uh, the uh, moderator said Beth Moore, and MacArthur now famously responded by saying, go home. Well, that 
ensued a lot of debate, again, in the evangelical community about whether, you know, the role of women in the church, the role of women in the proclamation of the word, should they be here in spite of what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and back and forth. One of the things I shared with our staff, and we, we debated this on a staff level, you can probably guess the ones who were a little more against MacArthur and those who were a little more for him. And sort of, you know, somebody reminded us in the middle of the debate, this isn't about this. This is about the issue of women. And should they be articulating the word of God in public? And what do you do about that? So I reminded our students, <laughs> staff and interns and everyone else, that all of us, and mark my words, all of us are under authority. In 1 Corinthians 11, Christ is the head of the husband. The husband's over the wife, right? And in and, and, uh, Luke chapter 7, you have this amazing account of this centurion, this, this centurion who would have been just, just adored and revered and feared. A centurion's over 100 soldiers, who comes to Jesus and says, my servant's dying. Would you come and heal him? I'm not worthy that you should step into my house. I myself am a man under authority. It's one of the, I mean, Jesus is so almost humanly stunned by the centurion and marvels over his understanding of submission. And then in the more famous passage in Ephesians 5, where husband, wives submit to the husbands, husbands love your wives, it's all predicated with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Have you read that? Listen, no matter who is speaking, there should be no doubt when you're looking at somebody talking to you and using the word of God, there should be no doubt that that man, that that woman is a humble child of God under authority. And this was never so powerful to me than a number of years ago when I was in a conference and Elizabeth Elliot was one of the speakers. Elizabeth Elliot became famous because her famous husband, died with four other missionaries at the hands of Alka Indians in 1956. Elizabeth wrote about it and was catapulted into, you know, relative Christum, uh, in Christendom, evangelical stardom. She would go on to remarry, and that would be a short marriage because that husband had cancer and died just a few years after they were married. So she became double-widowed. And then she would end up marrying a third time, a country bumpkin by the name of Lars. In between all that, she starts a radio ministry called Gateway to Joy. Did anybody ever listen to Gateway to Joy? That, I will, I will admit to you, I sat under her listening to the Gateway to Joy. She was articulate, she was eloquent, she was authoritative, but you never ever doubted as you listened to her that she was a woman under authority. And now I found myself in a venue where she was teaching at this conference. And it was a mixed venue, probably a couple thousand people, men and women. And she was teaching. The whole time she was teaching, the microphone in front of her just kept going like this. And she'd pull it back. And then it would do this again, and she'd pull it back. And you could just tell everybody, including myself, were getting really annoyed by this. Just going back, she'd pull it back, kept talking. All of a sudden, right coming down the aisle was this, the janitor, the custodian or something, and he's walking down the aisle, and he comes up, and he starts talking to her. 
It's Lars. He grabs the microphone and starts to fix it. And uh, knowing that she's going to have to go do something, fill the time, he's, he, he's fixing. He says, Elizabeth, tell these people about your second husband. Nobody ever hears about him. And the place just roared with laughter. And as if, as she looked at her adoring husband, she looked at him and just quickly flipped the switch and flipped the script and stepped off to the side and for the next five minutes told us all about Addison Leach, who nobody knew about, this, Trinity, this professor of Trinity. And she told how she loved him and how she stood by him as he died, etc., etc. And the whole thing was just a marvel to behold. The submission of Lars to, to reach out and help his wife and then allude to his predecessor. And of Elizabeth instantly obeying her husband. It was a beautiful thing to behold. There is an obscure passage and an otherwise well-known passage which I want to bring your attention to. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says these words, look at him, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, watch it, you have come to obey, say it everyone, from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. From your heart. Almost nobody recognizes that. I've never heard anybody address that passage with that prepositional phrase. Listen carefully to these words. A heart without truth is empty sentimentalism. And truth without a heart is empty platitude. Both are empty. They produce empty results. Fluffy so-called Christians make us laugh. Arrogant so-called Christians make us roll our eyes. And some of you are thinking, well, you've just kind of avoided the issue, haven't you? No, I've gotten to the heart of the issue. That's what I've done. The writer of Proverbs put it best, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. A hardened heart will not submit to God, but a tender heart will. So how is your heart right now? This, this section finishes up by giving us the ages of, of uh of Moses and his brother. They're 80 and 83. It reminds me 40 years later of Caleb, who's you know, one of these two spies who survived the deaths of those, that 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And when he's 85 years old, he goes, I'm like I was when I was 40. I, hey, give me that mountain. Remember that? And some of, you, some of you are probably thinking, well, you know, 80 back in those days was like 40 today. Not really. Not really. In fact, listen to what the psalmist said. Look at this. The years of our life are 70 years, and even by reason of strength, 80 years, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They soon gone, gone away. We fly away. So that even back in Bible times, the expectation of the span of life is just like it is now. And you know who wrote that, by the way? It's the only psalm he ever wrote. Moses wrote that. Why do I say that? I say it because I think of people in this church by the names of Arlen and Judy. 
Mike and Karen, Woody and Karen, Steve and Karen, a lot of Karens. Jim and Anita, Randy and Pam, Kermit and Val, Bob and Jolene, and several others. They call themselves prime timers, but I'd rather call them mountain takers. That's what they are. They're serving Christ. They're serving the elderly. They're serving the community. They're serving this church. They're serving. And I'm telling you, when your heart is right and tender with God, you serve God. Amen. Go ahead and clap. I mean, clap unto God for these individuals who serve from the heart, and by doing so, they keep their hearts tender to God. Now, the passage goes on in verse 8. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Aaron says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, game on. Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. A serpent. That's a strange thing. Why a serpent? Anybody here hate snakes? To the ancients, and even not so ancient, the snakes were synonymous with wisdom and cunning and shrewdness. If you don't believe me, think about what your own Savior said when he said, when you go out and you confront the world, be Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. I get the one, but I mean, the Egyptians were crazy about snakes. They feared them and they worshiped them. They even had snake god, Apophis, who, not surprisingly, personified evil. In fact, in the famous discovery, archaeological discovery of King Tutankhamun, or known as King Tut, his death mask has a, a female, fierce female cobra on it. And here it is right here. In fact, every pharaoh who ascended to the throne gave a prayer of dedication to that very God. So what is God doing here? He's taking them on. He's taking them on. And he's going to continue to do that. In fact, in verse 11, back to the text, verse 11 says, uh, then, Pharaoh sum- then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and so- sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also came and did the same by their secret arts. You see that? For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Now we know from by the way, you can mark the text, 2 Timothy 3.8, that these magicians, they had names. They're called Janus and Jambres. Apparently famous. They were like the David Copperfields of the day. And apparently, you know, snake handling wasn't started in the Appalachians. David Copperfield, Chris Angel, David Blaine, Penn and Tell. They didn't, Penn and Tell or rather, they didn't invent magic or illusion. And by the way, uh, those of you who have been studying this, put away the silly attempts to explain away what Janice and Jambres did. I mean, there's, 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 there's guys who say, well, they had this way of taking these cobras and they'd grab them by the neck and they'd stiffen up hard and they'd throw them down and you can even do it today. What are you talking about? These same two guys turn water into blood and, and, and also create the frog deal. 
or replicate as an illusion the frogs. Those three miracles, I mean, nobody explains those things. How do you explain it? I'll give it to you in a word. It was satanic. That's what the expression secret arts has to do. It has to do with incantations. But what you need to see is what it says in verse 12. We need to note that the best that they could do, listen to this, the best that they could do was imitate what God did. Carefully listen. Satan can only fabricate. He cannot create. He imitates. He doesn't generate. He can't because he's not a creator. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 10, we're told... Actually, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's no 10th chapter. Go ahead and try to find that one. But, but it's in the 10th verse. He alludes to the Antichrist. The whole section is about him as a counterfeiter. The term Antichrist, the prefix anti, has two basic meanings. Unfortunately, we think mostly about the second. It means against. And certainly Satan is against us. But a better understanding of the prefix anti is the word instead of. And that actually better helps us to understand what Satan is all about, right? He is instead of. He's both against and instead of. Both are true. His advocates both are against us and they promote replacements. And by the way, Jesus himself said that his his illusionary, his, his incantations are going to be so powerful that in the last days, even the elect would be fooled. The New Testament tells us he gives us false converts, and some of you are a part of that. They'll be preaching a false gospel, Galatians 1 says, false ministers, 2 Thessalonians, or, uh, Corinthians 13, false righteousness, Romans chapter 10. And here, why should it surprise us? He's going to present to us a false Christ. So you, get, you see what happens. He, Aaron throws the rod down, turns into a serpent. And by the way, there's all kinds of argument. Well, this is a word, it's a different word. It can mean crocodile. Or it could mean fierce, uh, and so maybe they were crocodiles fighting. The words are interchangeable. I think it was a serpent. And it ate up the others. And just like Cecil B. DeMille's, I, mean, I think it's probably pretty accurate. And so he eats the other guys. In fact, that's what the text says, doesn't it? But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Same word, by the way, is in chapter 15 when the Egyptian army follows the Jews into the Red Sea and the sea collapses on them and swallows them. Same word. As Moses' staff swallowed Pharaoh's serpent, so God would swallow his army. But that's getting ahead. But get this. Get this. The Egyptians believed that to swallow something was to acquire all of its power. You see what God's doing here? I love what Riken says. The important fact here is not zoological, but theological. He writes, God's spirit follows the same strategy to, to establish his throne on a sinner's heart. He makes his attack right at the source of the center of strength. If we crave power, God's spirit will show us how weak we are. If we live for pleasure, he will make us so miserable that the more we get, what we want, the unhappier we become. 
If we think life is all about making money, he will take our financial security away. Whatever gods we happen to worship, the Holy Spirit will confront them head on. Amen? I mean, can you say Kanye West? This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I'm drinking the Kanye Kool-Aid. You say, well, I mean, don't, don't, jump on, I mean, don't jump on that bandwagon too quick. I mean, you, know, you, know, you never know. What are you talking about? It looks pretty real to me. When he starts proving himself not to be real, that's when I'll write him off. I'm trusting God is in a, and is doing a work in his life. And if you think about this, I've often thought, God, look at this culture going to hell in a handbasket. What are you going to do to change? You're going to raise up another Billy Graham? Well, Billy Graham didn't bring revival to our culture. Hey, I got an idea. Take a culture that worships pop culture and redeem one of the most popular men within the pop culture. That'll change things. How cool is that? But I digress. I'm going back to the text here. <laughs> We're going to meet these Egyptian gods soon enough. The gods of, listen, listen to me. The gods of our culture serve as heart-hardening agents. Write that down. The gods of our culture serve as heart-hardening agents. Porn god, child god, work god, substance god, sport god, image god, pride god, power god, lust god, material god, reputation god, money god. None of them can change your heart towards God. And the text concludes by telling us after all of this, verse 13, still, still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as God said. The word hardened in the Hebrew is in the perfect tense. That means fixed. That means it wasn't getting hard. It was hard. And no amount of wow was going to change him, and it won't change you. Stop looking for signs. They didn't change Pharaoh's hearts. And you know, even Jesus, remember that? In the, remember in the story of the, of the rich man and Lazarus and that amazing dialogue between the, 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 the rich man who's now in hell, he didn't trust in God, he's in hell, he's looking across the chasm, he sees, he sees Lazarus in the, in the bosom of Abraham, and they're having this dialogue, and he says, look, this is so, the pain is so excruciating here in hell, if you would just send Lazarus back, to, I've got five brethren, they'll, they'll, they'll turn to God, and, and, and the Lord says, no, 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 they have Moses and the prophet. That's, that's like saying they have the Bible. Let them hear the Bible. And, but no, 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 that's not enough. The, the, the rich man doubles down. He says, no, no, you don't understand. If someone comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. To which Jesus concludes the dialogue by saying these words. He said to him, if, you, if they do not believe the word of God, neither will they be convicted if someone should rise from the dead dead. Powerful stuff, guys. The Hebrew word hardened, this word again, it literally means, watch it, it means heavy. Now, there's all kinds of illusions. God is just 
tree just attacking him at the center here. It means heavy. Why is that fascinating? It's unbelievably fascinating. Because the Egyptians believed the heart was the essence of the person and the key to eternal life. In fact, their temples depicted hearts of the dead, weighed on scales uh, of the goddess Mott. Opposite the dead heart was the feather of Mott. The verdict was determined, listen to this, the verdict was determined, according to the Egyptian cult, whether or not the heart outweighed the feather. If it did, it was literally swallowed up and damned into the lake of fire. Pharaoh's heart was hard. It was heavy. And that's the reason why the next line says he didn't listen. When your heart is heavy, you're unresponsive. You sit there. You don't care. And maybe you'll be respectful and you'll sit there like this. But you don't care. Because your heart is hard. But when Jesus comes in to the heart He infuses a divine helium, making them lighter than a feather, taking away the burden, taking away the weight, taking away the heavy of our sin, and setting us free. Listen, there's a cure for a heart that's hardened, and here it is. If you're going to have a cure, you need to realize your enemy doesn't want your health. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. When when Satan went after Job, decimating his health, it was so that he would curse God. He didn't, but that was his aim. Your heart doesn't need a sign. It needs to be changed. Your hardened heart doesn't need reforming. It needs redeeming. It doesn't matter if you change your ways. You're still going to go to hell when you die if your heart isn't redeemed. And that's what it needs to be, is redeemed. And your Savior didn't just taste your hard heart. He swallowed it. So when the Bible says, as a result of his death and his resurrection, Mortality gave way to immortality, and Paul declares death is swallowed up in victory. And that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus Christ will be the ultimate judge you stand before. And if you don't know Jesus, you will stand before him as judge. The judge in that courtroom, outside of that courtroom, had been offended by the very person that he loved. She was guilty and had admitted it. The tension was as thick as you could possibly imagine. The lawyers were buzzing. The judge himself was a very tall, stately man, and I saw people around him. They were talking, yelling, kind of snipping at him, and all I kept seeing him go like this. And I didn't even know what that meant. Suddenly, out of the blue, comes a lawyer, an advocate for the guilty woman, 
and looks at me and says, take her and leave. I said, what? Yeah, take her and leave. She's free to go. And just like that, we were outside, walking to the car. The judge chose, out of love, to swallow his right to condemn that person and released her to go. You want to talk about being knocked over by a feather. That was us. What a kind-hearted judge. And that's the kind of judge that rules the universe and is listening in and knows your heart. If it's hard, admit it. He's a kind judge. And he will save your heavy heart and make you light as a feather for God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the cross that we sang about, for Jesus Christ, and that he bore in his body our sin, all of our heavy, that we might turn our hearts to him and be saved. God, I pray right now, if, there, if, if that's you, dear friend, I don't care how old or young you are. I don't care how religious you are, how, much, how Christianized you've been. I don't care if you're a member of this church. If you are lost, you are going to hell. No amount of change in your life is going to change that unless you turn your heart to God. He is the only one who can change your hardened heart. And if you're a Christian, and you've allowed your heart to stiffen and harden and get heavy. Confess that to God. He's not just your judge. He is your savior. And he is righteous. He is the one you can come to. I pray that you would. Thank you, dear God, for being the one who bears our ultimate burden, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.